Welcome to episode six of the Raw Autos Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Lewis, the founder and editor of rawautos.com, for which this podcast is because of. Uh, in episode six, you'll hear from the great automotive writer and journalist slash lawyer, Jamie Kidman. And you'll learn a ton about him that is extremely interesting. And he is one of the best people you could ever listen to uh, or read. So just remember that. Just to get a few things out of the way, please visit rawautos.com for car reviews, uh, car opinions, you know, whatever. Written by me. Uh, also, you can find the Raw Autos podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Oh, and also Podbean. <laughs> That's actually who's originally hosting us is Podbean. So, uh, yeah, go to Raw Autos. Uh, the podcast uh, uh, page is actually on the top menu bar. Or you can go to Podbean and search the Raw Autos podcast. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. You can do that on Spotify. And you can do it on Stitcher as well. So we're pretty much everywhere now. We're going to be in every one of your homes annoying the hell out of you. You know, with everything going on with the COVID-19 slash coronavirus stuff, it is nice to be able to still sit down and chat with people. Uh, even though we can't really see them in person, can't really talk to them in person. Um, you know, I see my parents from afar if I'm dropping stuff off to them that they need, medicine or whatever. Uh, same with my aunt and uncle who live nearby. But, you know, just remember, stay positive. Stay vigilant for yourself, for your loved ones. It's frustrating. And it's getting more frustrating. My mom said to me today, uh, uh, well, I'm recording this actually at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning on the day that this will be uploaded. Uh, so um, uh, April 9th or 10th, sorry, 10th. Jeez, the days just keep rolling away. Um, but my mom said to me, uh, yesterday now, she said, you know, Joshy, that's what my mom calls me, uh, Joshy, you, you know, you can come in the house. I trust you. I trust you. And I trust that you are okay, that you don't have any symptoms. You don't have, you know, the coronavirus. And I said, mom, it's not that, it's not that I don't trust myself. I trust myself, but I have just been to two Walmarts picking up medication and supplies for you. You know, I, it, I don't think that's, I don't trust being in the Walmart setting. You know, I, I, it's not that I don't trust all those people. I just, I don't know. I don't know. And so we don't know. So stay vigilant. My mom, of course, wants to see me face to face more and, and be able to hug me and, and love me from, you know, right next to her instead of, 10, 12 feet away, but just stay positive, stay vigilant. I know it's a pain staying at home and hanging out in the backyard or, or, you know, if you don't have a yard, just hanging out in the house. I know it's a pain. I know it is, but seriously, this is all going to change. It's all going to change for the better. It's all going to get better at some point. I don't know how soon that will be. Hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later, but just remember you always have podcasts such as the Raw Autos Podcast. Send this to a friend or family member that is going crazy and needs something to listen to. I'll help them fill two hours of void of their life. <laughs> you know, I uh, that's why I started the podcast, so people would have something to listen to. And that's why I'm uploading three days a week, so people have more to listen to quicker, sooner. Oh, man. Episode six. 
It's already happening. It's already rocking and rolling. Six episodes in. Do you still give a damn? I do. I'm enjoying it. Mostly because I'm enjoying listening to people, asking people questions that I know are fun, are good people, entertaining, interesting. Now, on next Monday's podcast, April 13th, um, is it April 13th? Yeah, let me pull up my calendar. Yep, April 13th, that Monday. Jeez, God. Oh, my Lord. Uh, <laughs> John Volker, who is a green car expert of sorts. Uh, somebody, I had a very long, another long conversation, uh, which is great because he's an interesting, interesting person. And he's one of the go-to people when it comes to uh, the future of electric vehicles, uh, hybrids, plug-in hybrids, anything that has to do with more environmentally friendly cars. Uh, he's the guy. He's, he is a, a, an expert and you'll learn a lot of great things about him. Uh, on next Monday's podcast, uh, again, the 13th, mark your calendars, set a reminder in your phone. It'll go live that morning. So without further ado, I would like to get this started because I know you're going to enjoy the hell out of this great conversation that Jamie and I had, and I will talk to you after the podcast. Please welcome Mr. Jamie Kitman. How are you doing and how are you holding up? You are in kind of the epicenter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, um, I was in France, um, when it's, people started to realize it was getting serious. I was driving the new, uh, Alpine for, um, road and track. And, um, so I got back and, uh, my family had already split to my mother-in-law's and, left me to self-quarantine and then uh i actually got sick although i don't know what it was it was not severe uh, but i've, I've kind of had a cold for like three weeks or allergies or something but uh my daughter tested positive um uh here uh last i guess well she just got tested last week but i think she's going to be okay I, I really hope so obviously she um has she was largely asymptomatic but yeah it's uh you know all my businesses have dried up and it's uh you know it's it's uh it's a tough time but you know it's worse for other people than me i'm i'm sure in a, in a strange way it's um it's kind of relaxing in the sense that you know the just the complete uh you know the facade of reality has been peeled away and yeah. You know, you're just sort of left there and, and, you know, it's like, okay, my, my check is late, you know, sorry, yeah, right. you know, and, uh, you know, I mean, I could kind of deal with that. Well, I keep thinking like the, the one good thing is I feel like we're all, or, you know, for the most part, we're all on the same page in terms of financial institutions and, and, you know, uh, you know, our personal lives, because we're not, you know, not all of us are getting checks, you know, especially not on time. And, you yeah. know, and the financial institutions are starting to kind of realize, okay, maybe we need to kind of take a step back and kind of give people a little leeway here. Um, so I just keep thinking that, okay, there's a, there's a, a small sense of, of positivity in that, you know? 
Right. Um, well, it it puts the uh, you know I mean there's there's strong reason to wonder if anybody ever learned anything from the 2007 eight financial crisis. Right. But that sort of um, you know relatively benign behavior on the part of banks suggests that maybe there was. Well, and okay, so that leads me to to a great follow up question. Um, I used to sell cars. I sold cars in 2007, right as the economic crisis was was hitting and attacking us. Um, you were a dealer, a, a car I was, dealer. I was a new, court, new and used salesman? car dealer. Yeah, I was a salesperson. Yeah. So what 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 franchises? Uh, so I was for Mazda and Kia, um, and oh, okay. uh, and then a ton of used cars. And uh, I used to get in trouble because I was too honest with customers. I would tell them too much of the process and tell them to be careful of what was being told to them in the finance office. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I got in trouble all the time. Um, and I saw the writing on the wall. I saw everything that was going on because we were doing a lot of subprime lending ourselves. Our uh, One of our managers was contacting a friend of his who was a manager at a Wachovia branch saying, hey, buy this, buy this uh, customer because we're just going to repo the car in another month or two because they can't afford it anyway. So I, I started to try and like put pieces together. Like I got to get the hell out of this. This is crazy. Right. And you know, obviously the banks were involved with a lot of stuff and now, you know, fast forward almost, you know, going on 10 years or going on uh, 13 years now for 12, 13 years. Have the banks learned, has the automotive industry learned anything from this is it going to change because of the coronavirus or is it just going to be a a sense of like well we'll get through this and then we'll just power on back to selling suvs and trucks oh i think the the uh you know i mean i think there are certainly people who know more than they did although they knew more than they they showed in 2007-8 um and in after 9-11 they you know they knew better but they did it. it, it it's uh, you know, it's a, it's a uh, it's a very uh, volatile industry. I think people are used to that. I think they expect that. But it's also uh, you know, it's 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 not uh, particularly introspective. So I think that they do things that they know are bad. You know, it's like the person who has that that one last drink at the bar, that mm-hmm. extra you know helping of of you know rich dessert. What, when they know they have a heart condition and gallbladder issue, um, they you know they just can't help themselves. Um, so, so much of their thinking is based on you know just like what what works to you know like that to get me high now. They're like junkies is a better analogy. Um, that it's like you know yeah I, I should cut this out, but you know but I'm a junkie. So, <laughs> right. you know, I mean, uh, a lot of people don't get that. Um, that comes that, you know, they come to that realization and they don't, they don't come up with the right conclusion about what they should do. So I think, uh, you know, the, the predicate of today's industry where everybody, including the people we thought knew better in Japan and Europe and elsewhere are at least as far as American market is concerned, they're hooked on selling, um, high profit SUVs and crossovers and pickup trucks. And that's, you know, after that, they really don't have very many good ideas. So, and when just the metal itself isn't moving, if they have to subvent it or, you know, put a lot of cash on the hood, that's, that's what they do too. I mean, that's what they were just starting to do 
before the coronavirus even kicked in. And they fall back into subprime lending and all the other things that, you know, make, you know, the money flow. But, you know, the, the hangover is, is surely awaits. So do you think that do you think that uh, especially truck companies, um, you know, mainly General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, and even Toyota in this regard, do you think that they're going to start looking at the fact that these trucks are crazy expensive? I mean, you you know, it's so easy to buy a sixty or seventy thousand dollar truck these days. I know it's mind blowing, and and it's you know you're you're spending you know nine hundred to thirteen hundred dollars on a payment for some people. I mean that's realistically that is i know people that spend twelve hundred dollars on a car payment but they're they are you know they're in an sl 63 amg or you know uh uh, an m850 or something like that you know but there are truck customers out there that are paying that same amount of monthly payment what are we going to see these car companies start to try and pull those prices back uh not if they can help it um they may have to um, but uh, it's it's they they live uh, you know they live a, a risky game you know um, and uh, I I don't I don't there's no evidence of uh, you know uh, profound good sense anywhere in the auto industry I mean the 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 slightest uh, signs of encouragement that I see the only slight signs of encouragement that I see are around the you know the japanese and korean makers who Mm -hmm. are like you know we we our research tells us that young people would like to buy a small car they'd like they like cars they don't need an suv their parents drove suvs and they're sick of it so we're not getting out of that market because it could change it's a Mm -hmm. it's a it's a it still is a substantial part of the market you know even if it's not you know uh 60% 60% or 40% even, it's still a lot of cars. And now that everybody's falling out of it, we can just stay in and pick up all their sales of what you would have been Fords or Chevys mm-hmm. or, or what have you. So, um, uh, but I don't, I don't see a lot of that. I, I mean, I always analogize it to uh, the, you know, people who go like, well, you know, I mean, what, what the car companies are saying is like, we just want uh, high profit sales and that's right. what the market is telling them. And of course, you don't look at any of this without looking at the effect of the markets, uh, you know, the stock markets in particular on on car companies. And um, so they're like, you know, you need to make the most profit now. Uh, that's aside from the, you know, the uh, the obvious pressures of ha- how do we electrify and make money and how do we deal with autonomy and, you know, all the the shifting business models and ride sharing and et cetera, et cetera. But, but uh, it's, it's analogous right now to the person who says, well, I, I only eat dessert, you know, I skip the other <laughs> stuff because uh, it tastes so good, you know? Uh, and uh, that's unfortunate. I think it's not healthy. Uh, everything we know tells us that it shouldn't be that way, that not everything you sell can be your most profitable thing. That profit cannot only be measured in, you know, in in quarterly, you know, um, profits versus losses, and that, um, you know, a well balanced diet is, uh, you know, it's there's there's such a thing for um, an international um, car maker as, as well as there is for any living being. Well, and that that so you talk about small cars, and I'm sure you know, like me, you've driven many cars, many small cars and everything. 
And I feel like I've noticed just over the past five years, small cars have gotten so much better than they ever have been. You know, I mean, they're, I just had a, uh, the new Toyota Yaris, which is AKA the Mazda two over in Europe. And yeah, it's a great, it's a great car. It's fantastic. Um, and especially when you remember how bad the, the, the entry level Toyotas were you right. know, remember back to Paseos and some Tercels, which were just appalling. And, <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, and and it, it have they really have gotten better. There's been some good ones throughout history, and in, in America, we we were generally denied the best ones. But uh, you know, there's counter that there's there's that, uh, and uh, you know, I think there's there you know there could be money to be made. I mean, I think the thing that I keep coming back to is you know the companies always say well we're helpless and we're blameless in this situation what can we do <laughs> people just want to buy $75,000 trucks How, you know it's not our fault you know like uh you know there should be gov- some government regulation or something or people should get wise but you know what uh that you built that paradigm yeah. and it's really it's really an extension of you know, the lower, longer, wider thing of the 50s and 60s. Or if it has more chrome, it's better. I'll pay more for it. If it's longer, I'll pay more for it. And now the paradigm has just been morphed into, you know, if it's taller, I'll pay more. Mm-hmm. If it's taller and longer, I'll pay still more. And I think that um, it's really, um, it's a, it's an unfortunate thing because I think there is, there there was at least a way forward that wasn't as, you know, uh, reptilian as that. Um, which was, you know, sort of hinted at by the success, initial success of, of many in America where, you know, here you have like a, you know, reasonably premium price car that broke the size, you know, dollar, um, you know, um, math, which, which they had, the industry had built up. I mean, the dirty little secret of the auto industry is it doesn't really cost that that much more to make a, you know, a uh, a, a bigger car than a smaller one. Right. You know, they they're you know they're, it costs more, but certainly not in the multiples that they get. So as that sort of crumbled, uh, and the uh, you know the regulations were you know handcrafted by the industry in concert with the various administrations, including the Obama administration. Who, should not escape our, you know, condemnation on this mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. Um, you know, with with regulations that essentially uh, allowed them to, uh, you know, um, do a, a walk around uh, cafe standards and emissions right. standards if they built things with a bigger footprint. Um, you know, the SUV became the the lower, longer, wider of of the past. Uh, and is is now what we have today. So you know, the most expensive Cadillac is, of course, is going to be an Escalade, which in its new 2021 form is it's taller, uh, <laughs> longer, and wider. Right. Um, doesn't get much better gas mileage nope. at all. Nope. Um, and it's you know, and it's more expensive. So that's that's what they want to do but i think ultimately you know i mean that's what the whole world has devolved into is chasing rich people's money mm-hmm. and and if you can't be rich and just buy this stuff by writing a check uh you know people go broke or they go into into de- hawk or you know into real debt to have what they you know think will 
confer the status that they need so they can hold their head high in Mm -hmm. their community. And um, I think, you know, another model would have been for the industry to, you know, to celebrate other virtues and to market around them. You can't tell me that they just threw away a hundred billion dollars, you know, in the, in the, in the 21st century, if, if not more marketing SUVs, um, that that didn't have an effect. Cause if, if what they're saying is, is that they're just responding to what consumers want, then why did they need to spend a hundred billion dollars marketing them? And why didn't they, you know, why didn't they market something else? Because very clearly, they're not. I mean, you, you, a, a trip to any car dealer uh, in the last 20 years will tell you, or, you know, 30 years, what they, you know, f- throughout history, it'll tell you what they want to sell. I, I was recounting on some social media, you know, dialogue the other day. I remember going to, when I was, you know, in college, dry, going to drive a Mercure XR4 Ti, which my parents were theoretically maybe interested in. Um, and, uh, the guy tried to steer me into a town car and, um, my, um, uh, a friend of mine wanted to get a Chevy Bolt. I was testing one and she loved it. And, uh, so I called GM and said, where, you know, I know it's hard to buy an electric car and not everybody, not every dealer carries them. Not every dealer really is interested in selling them, but tell us like, who's your EV friendly dealer? In the, in the New York tri-state area and, you know, who will help her out. And they were like, sure, sure, call these people. And we called them and she went and she, they got there and they were like, yeah, we, we, there's the, the, we have one, it's this color. We can't say when we'll get another one. It could be six months, it could be never. Um, but why do you want to buy that anyway? And they tried to talk <laughs> her out of it. And in the end, they did. Um, they talked her out of it. So it was like, you know, uh, I can tell you more. I tried to buy an e-golf and Volkswagen. I couldn't find one in the New York tri-state area. That's New York City where, you know, if there was ever a market that you're going to sell an extra car in, that's one of them. It's a perfect uh, market. They, they, there were none of them. And I called up the press office and they were like, er, well, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, there's a guy out in L.A. who I know is a friend of mine who has a business that kind of Brokers used uh, EVs, and um, they were getting into the business of selling new ones. And they called Volkswagen up um, at the corporate level and said, "We want to buy a thousand e-golfs, and we have the financing lined up, and we're ready to go." And Volkswagen's like, "Holy shit! We'll we'll get back to you." And they <laughs> they don't call him back, and he calls them like a week later, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we'll get back to you." And then they call him, and they go, "Well, here's what we can do: we can get you three. Um, oh like, we want a thousand. They're like." They're like impossible. Um, so, you know, they're not, they're not trying. Um, they weren't trying. I mean, and a lot of times they use the inherent chaos of the American political system to mm-hmm. be their, their, you know, their all purpose excuse. Right. Like, you know, we think that the government should tax gasoline. So it would encourage people to use less of it. Okay. Where's your lobbyist saying any, anything to anybody? Right. I mean, you guys can make it so that it's impossible to sell a Tesla in a lot of states because of you know the deal you, the dealers and yourselves lobbying against it, but but you know like why can't you do that you know and they're like well that's you know that's political and as you're like well 
then how come you're stumping for you know the George Bush tax cuts or the Trump right. tax cuts if you don't want to get that's political you know it's like so they're they're really not um, they're really not trying and you know they they really don't care to try because you know that's you know in their defense it's it's a really fast moving uh, a business that is you know I mean to use the cliche it's it's trying to turn an ocean liner around, you know, mm-hmm. on a dime. It's, it, it doesn't work that way. But, you know, the whole system, which, you know, I mean, many an executive has complained privately to me about this. It's it's geared towards quarterly results. And right. they cannot, you know, they can't say this is what is going to happen in five years in America because they, they can't, they're not allowed to think in terms of five years. And in right. a lot of, you know, companies, you're not going to be there in five years because, the turnover is intense, you know, especially in the, you know, the uh, a step or two below the, um, you know, CEO and uh, a level. You, you know, people, CMOs are gone, and you know, in mm-hmm. in in two years usually. Um, and uh, so the the idea of having like a a coherent new policy is as opposed to just like walking in the well trodden paths um, that everyone did before is it's a really tough and you know you get people who are you know have who've gone outside of their mold but they're they're usually you know maniacs a lot carlos gone or um people like that who also you know ultimately get tripped up by the same stuff you know right. you got to keep the numbers looking good or the, otherwise i'm going to get fired um and it, it leads them to all kinds of Apparent behaviors, or you know, Marchione now has been revealed as probably having endorsed a variety of criminal and semi-criminal activity to you know make his company seem more successful than it was. Um, and uh, I, I'm a, a big um, fan of Carlos uh, Tavares, the PSA, which mm-hmm. will now be PSA FCA, whatever that's going to be called. And uh, but at the same time, you know, it's like you see these things that happen and you just scratch your head. You're like GM lost money on Opal for 20 consecutive years and you turn it around in six months. How did that happen? You know, is that about, you know, different accounting systems or did you really identify some, some big cost savings that were not going to hurt the company? I don't know. So um, it is all very weird. And I feel like there's, there's a great irony, you know, to, so when I, when I sold cars, the second lesson they told me in the back office when they were teaching me everything, second lesson was everybody that walks in the lot, no one knows what they want to buy. You have to tell them what they want. And that's what I feel like the, you know, marketing for SUVs and trucks has been, you know, oh, the, the, the public is stupid. We got to tell them they want these things, you know? And the the irony though that you talk about you know car companies can't think five years down the road back in the 60s back in the 50s every year there was a new piece of styling you know and then but now it takes five to ten years to bring out a new car and it's so it's so ironic when you think about after world war ii fast turnaround of different you know technologies and and uh stylings for cars and then now we have every piece of technology in the world. And they're like, well, it's going to take us three to four years just to adapt it into a new car. Why? Right. You know, it, I mean, obviously we can talk, we can speculate, we can wish and hope, but how much of a shame is it that they can't 
start thinking five years down the road because they've seen where it doesn't it doesn't necessarily fit for them to to think well it's i mean look at the world today yeah i mean how how fucked up is everything and how much of that is based on the shortest term thinking possible right you know and it's run by people who are thinking short term because you know they only got so many years in their office whether it's political or corporate and, uh, you know, and the, and the banks are that way. And everybody listens to some yo-yo on Wall Street who tells them this or that, which, you know, uh, but but, uh, you know, and again, in, in fairness to the car companies, you know, I mean, they did, there was no regulations to speak of in the um, in the 50s True. And, and 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 through the 60s. Now, of course, they fought re- regulations. Uh, violently and and spent so much money doing that and and you know damaged their credibility and their uh, and the public health so much by doing that. But but it, you know it was that was probably easier at least for a time than it than it became. Then I think um, you know is I you know I mean everybody just knows what they've seen and how you know how long they've been alive paying attention, but. The dynamic that occurs to me is that um, the car companies, uh, you know, which were once, you know, blue chip stocks, saw their 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 bonds be, you know, uh, downgraded. They started losing money like hand over fist at, at various times in the 90s and early 2000s that scared them enough that they, you know, they and then they would make lots of money and their stock prices still wouldn't go up. And then of course they literally went bankrupt, you know, by virtue of their short sighted, you know, stupid thinking, but um, you know, which as, as we've noted is not, you know, entirely their fault, but that's what they did. And ever since then, my observation is, is, you know, they returned to mega profitability Posting some of their highest profits, in, mm-hmm. in fact, their record profits mm-hmm. in their entire existences, but the market still didn't respond. And why didn't it respond? Because it had become fixated on tech companies that were earning, you know, unheard of multiples in quickly. And suddenly, you know, they were the AAA rated companies, and these guys were selling B rated, you know, bonds or junk bonds. And even though they had, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of turnover. So I think they became obsessed by those companies and they became convinced that, you know, they, uh, the way they would appeal both to the market, but also to a new breed of younger buyer was to start cramming more and more, you know, kind of tech that was ephemeral to making a good car, but maybe good to be connected or to make your car a phone, you know, which Mm. is what, uh, or your laptop, and that's really where it all headed. Now, for a while, I think that the tech industry itself was, you know, uh, amused by the car companies and didn't really need them very much, and they were kind of haughty about it, and then, which offended the executives personally, um, which just made them even more jealous and pissed off. But then, um, you know, as phones and all other, you know, tech stuff, connected tech stuff became commoditized. The profits fell on that. And it became more important for the tech companies to run towards the automakers who are running towards them. So now it's it's this entire ecosphere of, you know, of greedy, you know, capitalists trying to <laughs> trying to make a buck um in you know, in in this crazy world. 
So um, I think that that has led to, you know, like an excessive rush to get tech in, in cars. Uh, often it's, you know, it's not really resolved. You know, I mean, a lot of cars I could name, but won't, which they, they clearly haven't figured it out. <laughs> and it's been going on for a long time. I mean, I remember the when Mercedes-Benz really first started cheaping itself and the first C-Class came out somewhere around the year 2000 that a guy I knew who worked at a Mercedes dealer telling me that the, the cars were already on flatbeds coming back to the dealer having, you know, essentially bricked with um, – while they were still in Germany writing code, like they were selling cars that they knew they had, wow. you know, big unresolved code issues for, but you know, they couldn't miss a model year. Although, uh, I remember Volkswagen missing a year of the golf in the nineties, um, over some, you know, it's not ready to go to market yet reason. And, uh, that, uh, you know, I mean, that, I mean, of course, now that seems funny that anyone even cares. I mean, Corvette missed it in 83. Yeah, they gave up on the Golf, uh, Volkswagen in America. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, you know, that was emblematic. I mean, just looking at Volkswagen is emblematic of the corrosive effect that America has on, on, um, you know, people who come in. You know, Mm -hmm. you come to play the game here, and it's easy, and you talk to a bunch of car dealers uh and it's easy to get your head spun around to somewhere where you end up you know um you know killing what it is that made you special well look at america itself is under the citizens are underserved by uh the car makers Mm -hmm. you know we get it's like we're a third world country yeah. And the the new uh, Trump rollbacks of the EPA emissions <laughs> and CAFE standards just, you know, send us further out into the the wilderness. Um, and, you know, we're, we will have, you know, we do have and will have, you know, on average, crappier cars than other people, you know. It is, uh, it is really weird because when you think about Ford, they, they tried to do that global under Alan Mulally, they were like, you know what, everything's going to be global now. And then just fast forward, you know, barely 10 years later. And they're like, you know what, uh, it didn't really work. You know, we're going to start pulling a lot of that back. We're going to do this differently. You know, we're going to do it market to market sort of thing. And it's, it, yeah, it's fascinating. It's weird. Is it not? Absolutely. Um, I mean that, you know, but I mean, there's other weird things. If you look at the arc of the entire industry, there was a time when, you know, everybody wanted to be vertically integrated like right. Henry Ford. They wanted to make their own steel. They wanted to own their own glass company and make their own starters. And, right. You know, that would that was a different model than the average, you know, early uh, car manufacturer who would basically, you know, set up a line and then buy engines from here and gearboxes from here and brakes from here and they would they would assemble a car out of it with their own body maybe um and even that might be farmed out so uh, that you know what seemed to be the most profitable was to to make everything yourself and then so you know we'd spent 50 75 years watching that happen and then it just started disappearing to the point while by the you know by the middle 90s gm was saying like we're a marketing company, mm-hmm. you know, we're not really, you know, we don't have to design the interiors of our car. We can let somebody else do that. Uh, and, you know, of course, actually that's what you do worst, you know, um, right. marketing, well, you know, yeah. your ads are terrible. Nobody wants what you're selling. <laughs> and then, you know, you look at your cars that you let the marketers design and that, you know, 
they're terrible. I remember when they they did this Malibu and it looked it, it kind of like a extra ugly Camry back in the days where Camrys were ugly, and they were introducing it. And people were like, well, what you know, why does this? They're like, look at the Camry. People are buying that, and you go like, well, you know, but not because it was beautiful. It was because <laughs> it didn't suck, you know. Right. I mean, it was, they bought it because it was reliable, and it showed up in the Consumer Reports as being a reliable car. And here you guys go, and you make another shitty car, but it, now it looks ugly like a Camry. So, you know, it's just like you, you end up with nothing. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's it it doesn't it doesn't really makes sense and of course it you know for just from an enthusiast perspective it limits uh you know it, it limits choice and difference that's why i'm so into old cars it's like you know i was this morning i was driving my 65 uh, peugeot 404 wagon and it is uh, it's such it's so different than other cars you know of its day and mm-hmm. and you drive 60s cars and you you know the engines sound different the Everything feels different. Brakes you know, they are different. Different. The brakes are different. Mm-hmm. The whole experience is different. The style is different. The materials are different. And you know, I mean, you know, they weren't all great. You know, it's not to lose ourselves. <laughs> and there's a lot of things about new cars that are desirable. But um, um, the um, uh, but 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 the you know that that's that specialness is 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 lost. And you know, I mean. People have complained. I mean, young people don't realize. I didn't realize uh, when I was young um, that people have been complaining about how cars all look the same since, uh, you know, the 20s and 30s. People were (laughs) then, you know, I mean, there were lots of people who couldn't tell one car from another necessarily. But uh, and, you know, uh, obviously regulations have had some effect on those things and all the the cost structures that they have. But um, uh, and constraints. But uh, it doesn't. It doesn't really have to be that way. And um, I would like to see them spend a lot more time just trying to differentiate their products. Because ultimately, I think products are meaningful. You know, products create a brand. Um, it, it's not like you don't tell people what your brand is. Your product should tell people what your brand is. Right. And the word will have to spread. And at the same time, to me, every time I see a brand shut down, I feel like there's been a big failure of imagination here because, mm-hmm. you know, to start a new, each, even to start a mediocre new brand, you know, you, you really want, you know, $20 billion, you know, $50 billion, some insane amount of money. Um, so like, you know, why you would close it just for that. I mean, and, you know, they, they always say, well, you know, like when Chrysler closed Plymouth, they're like, well, well, you know, they'll they'll just buy Dodges. Well, you know, guess what? They didn't. Um, when G- GM closed Oldsmobile, you know, who had sold, you know, within memory, had sold a million cars a year. They were like, you know, yeah. And I remember uh, the then uh, embarrassing um, uh, guy at GM, Ron Zarella, um, had uh, had said that um, that it was right at the same time that they were launching Hummer. And there was this big press conference in New York I went to that was hosted by the then Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, um, who was, you know, the the full measure of his dickishness was just, you know, <laughs> just been coming into uh, into focus. Um, but um, Zarella was asked about, uh, you know, like why were they buying Hummer that at that point had just sold H1s, and he was like, well, the loyalty of the owner base is incredible. 
And I did the math for a column in Automobile, having seen this and been horrified. It, it involved a parade down the closed Times Square with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Giuliani <laughs> and Ron Zarella in a Hummer H1. And it just was like, and this was before the Gulf. It was just like, what the fuck is going on? But in any case, um, it, it, it seems sort of Nazistic. But then, um, uh, so I did the research. Hummer at that point had sold 7,000 civilian Hummers, which incidentally, the worst car I've ever driven in my entire life, bar none, <laughs> or new car. Um, I drove one um, uh, with a van, uh, a client of mine in my music management business to the premiere of the Farrelly Brothers movie Kingpin, which oh, yeah. written the score for. We drove to Newport, Rhode Island, um, and... Uh, uh, in a Hummer H1, and we got four miles per gallon. Oh my god! Um, I kid you not. And it was just appalling, and was torture at sixty miles an hour. <laughs> the AC barely worked. Um, and um, anyway, so that was the 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 installed owner base that they were, um, uh, you know, chasing. At the same time, Oldsmobile, which they were closing, I researched it with Wards and. There were over 3 million registered automobiles in America, and they closed that, and then they opened Hummer. And, you know, just mystifying. That said, you know, um, I think they're not unwise to bring Hummer back necessarily as an electric vehicle. And I think, you know, I mean, if that ever pans out, it could be okay. Um, well, I think that's and, one of you the know, smartest They did spend things. all that money. Yeah, I think that's yeah. one of the smartest things because Hummer was a, a loyalist brand. However, I agree with you in because I remember when Oldsmobile closed down. I mean, I'm I'm only thirty; I'll be thirty four in May, so I'm not terribly old. But I grew up around GM cars and and GM dealerships and stuff when I was a kid. And where did you grow up? I grew up uh, so actually Raleigh, North Carolina. Oh, okay. So I'm originally from Baltimore, um, but my parents okay. moved us down here in 1990, and uh, I was born in '86. But so a family friend of ours owns a Chevy dealership uh, nearby, and my dad is a big GM guy. His dad was always a Cadillac and, and GM guy, and so my dad was always a GM guy. So everything What'd we had... What'd your dad do? What'd you say? What'd your dad do? So my dad actually just recently retired about three years ago. He used to own a corporate travel agency. Um, he started that oh, wow. in 1994 and sold it um, just, uh, what, three or four years ago now, and... Uh, It'll be three years actually in July, and uh, so semi-retired, but he is, oh my God, between Corvettes and Escalades, we had the first Escalade that came out in, what, 99, and then my mom has had, I think, eight or nine more since then, uh, wow. mainly ESVs, so my dad has had every Corvette, <laughs> every single iteration, every single style from 1967 to current, and- Do you have a C8? He actually has one on order. It is, it is, I don't know when it'll be delivered. It keeps getting pushed back, but he's supposed to be getting it soon. So, what color? Oh, uh, it's, um, I want to say it's that burnt orange that they're doing. Um, uh-huh. that, that cool. bronzish orange. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, it, like right now, his daily driver is an M850i X Drive. And then my mom's is a 750i, uh, M Sport. And then he also has a Ferrari California. And then he has a 79 Trans Am Resto Mod. He just sold a 67 Corvette Resto Mod that he had. 
Um, my dad likes the rest of mods, rest of modded cars or likes to build rest of mod cars because as he always tells me, I lived in that era. I'm surprised they didn't die and I'd rather not die driving them again. So, <laughs> so, you know, he's like, uh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, look to each their own. I, I prefer the cars being more classic, you know, natured only because I didn't live in that era. I didn't get to experience them. So I want to experience them as much as possible. But the rest of mods that he's had built or built are are very, very good. You know, they're really cool cars and they're a lot of fun. But, you know, I grew up around all these cars. I, my Actually, my brother had, a, had an Oldsmobile when I was a teenager. I have three older siblings. And I was devastated when Oldsmobile closed up shop. I was devastated when GM closed down Pontiac because I thought, here are brands that I know don't cost General Motors a ton of money to operate. And they can use those brands if they thought outside the box, they could use those brands to basically print money, you know? And that's what I, I still, I still have a hard time understanding why they wouldn't think about bringing a Pontiac or an Oldsmobile back into, into the market to build those sedans that they don't want on a Chevy dealership, you know, or at a Chevy on a Chevy lot. What? I don't even see why they wouldn't want it though, but, but yeah, I mean, they could, I think, you know, obviously there are issues that are complex involved, for, you know, dealer franchises, right. franchise laws and things like that. And the, you know, what happens to you? I know when I was talking to uh PSA about like what they were to do, I interviewed Tavares for the New York times last year about like how they were going to bring it back to America. And, and, he was like, you know, like one of the advantages we have, we have no dealer network to deal with right now. Right. So we can, we can kind of, we have a lot more freedom than uh, others might in, in thinking about that. Um, cause I guess after a certain number of years, they have no obligation to anybody cause they shut down in 91 or two in the States. Um, so yeah, anyway. And speaking uh, of that real quick with <laughs> dealer networks and everything, you as an attorney, and an automotive journalist. I mean, I think you're you you have a good mix of both sides. You have actually, um, uh, as an attorney, you're an attorney in New York and New Jersey, right? Yes. And you handle you handle management of bands, and you handle um, movie movie set cars and stuff like that. Or yeah, I have I have a company uh, that that's called the Hornblog Review USA that's been managing bands since. 1987, um, the year you were just, uh, one, what, oh, a one year, year old? old yeah. yeah. Uh, I started managing the band. They might be giants and I still manage them. Um, and we manage a lot of bands since, um, uh, I have a company that's called Octane Film Cars, which mm -hmm. is actually in partnership with Haggerty, the <laughs> insurance company. We do, uh, cars, uh, for TV, movies, advertising. Uh, we, um, are, fortunate um we started independently but we we're fortunate in the partnership in that we have access to haggerty's database of 1.6 million classic cars oh, um and which we can geo target around the country so we just did a um uh a movie um a new guillermo del toro movie up in buffalo and we supplied a dozen or so uh 1940s 1930s cars uh for a period piece uh film and uh yeah so that's uh those are those are two main lines of business other than the 
car writing and to update that i left automobile magazine after gosh uh the first freelance piece i sold to them when i was still like uh, in law school was 35 years ago but i've been right was have been writing a column for them for 27 years and um but i'm happy to report that i've joined uh the new uh newly reimagined road and track which is now a an upscale bi-monthly um not writing a column just yet but uh have been working recently on (laughs) what will be an extended feature for their first issue um when that comes out and that's exciting um the first car magazine i ever bought was road and track uh when in 1960 nine maybe um it had the morgan plus eight which was then had just come out on the cover and uh i had a thing for morgan's having seen one in a, a friend of my parents garage and uh was slightly obsessed so i bought a car magazine and i read it i was like in the fifth grade or something like that and um uh yeah and then it was downhill with car magazines ever ever after by the time I was 11, I asked for and was fortunate to get by combining my birthday and Hanukkah presents together. I got um, a subscription to the Auto Car, the English magazine, oh, yeah. which was a weekly, which would come every day. And was, even then, it was like $75 for a year. But um, oh <laughs> I had seen it. I had seen it in there used to be things called out of town newsstands, and they would have stuff from, from Europe. And uh, I saw that. And, bought it because there was some English car that I liked. Um, I often uh, have written about that, but I had uh, I was obsessed with English cars because I was born in Brooklyn, but when I was pretty young, my parents moved us to a New Jersey suburb that was literally like you walking distance from Manhattan. You could just, it was a two-mile walk from my house to uptown Manhattan, cross, crossing the George Washington Bridge on foot. And um, But our town was the headquarters for British Leyland. Um, oh, wow. So as a kid, as a little kid, I saw like Range Rover prototypes and the first Range Rover prototypes and, T, you know, TR variations on TR7s, mm-hmm. you know, when I was a little older. And um, so, yeah, I had a I had a warped view of, of like what people drove. I thought people, everybody was driving a Triumph Spitfire in Austin, America. Um, and um, it, it wore off on me. So the first car I had any involvement in was I was one of four owners of a uh, MGA, which my one quarter share cost me twelve dollars and fifty cents when I was thirteen or fourteen. It had been in a fire, um, and um, we started fixing it up. And then somebody came and offered us, you know, like a hundred dollars to buy the rear clip. So we we cut the car in half and gave him the rear clip. And I think that was the last time I made a profit on a on a car <laughs> for the, about 25 years. Um, but I so I had a, a an MGA, another MGA, which was my first real driver. But I had a a, a half interest in a hundred twenty five dollar TR three that we bought from a junkie in Hackensack, New Jersey, um, uh, uh, off out of a classified ad, and he towed us home. We didn't even know how to drive, but we <laughs> we took it home and. The brakes caught on fire because we were on the brakes the whole time. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I had, I had some pretty nutty, bad, you know, rusty cars. I used to specialize in buying, you know, rusted out MGBs and driving them until the 
the front spring mount would come through the floor and the car would just steer off the road um so yeah it was it was it was a different time it was funny because my parents were like uh you know they were safety conscious but they you know they didn't believe in buying kids cars um and uh even if they could afford it um which at one point they probably couldn't and they probably could have and uh so but they had you know they never thought about like well does that thing have seat belts? Does do the brakes work? You know, is it a problem that you can see through the floors? You know, um, uh, they, but you know, but but I made it, and so here I am. And really? I never, I never really shook that um, that addiction. I've I've talked about before about um, my family's uh, lifetime connection to Land Rovers, even though my parents never owned one. My dad, uh, who was a freelance writer and a satirist but he wrote a column for the saturday evening post um and he ran for president in 1964 he got a um as a as one of the first ever satirical candidates yeah he got the van rover car company which wasn't yet part of british island to sponsor his campaign so we had free campaign vehicles um and we went to the new hampshire primary in 1964 in a 109 land rover um and he went to, he, where he won one delegate um who flipped on him at the 64 republican national convention um a guy named fritz weatherby uh whose name will forever live in infamy in our household um <laughs> of course he, he he ended up voting for harold stassen who was like this loser who kept running and never getting enough delegates but in any case we flew it was the first time i was in an airplane we flew to san francisco on twa now defunct and got off um on you know one of those you'd walk downstairs right onto the runway and there at the bottom of the runway to greet us and the other passengers were three um 88 inch land rovers one of which had all with red white and blue bunting and one of them had a um, speaking platform welded to the back of it and my dad got up and made a speech uh to a bunch of reporters while uh two women in red white and blue bikinis threw flowers at the (laughs) at the onlookers and i was you know i was uh five years old and it it kind of made sense to me it seemed a little weird but um I thought it was pretty cool, and we and we got to drive around Land Rovers, and ever after that, he would borrow Land Rovers from them, and I came to believe that, you know, uh, I I think I came to understand that it was possible to get cars for free, and while I was a teenager, I used to go to car dealers uh, who, by the, you know, late 70s had figured out that... Um, uh, that you know you weren't supposed to judge a book by its cover, and if somebody came in and wanted to buy a car, you should be nice to them, even if they looked like you know stoned hippie, <laughs> um, and because they might actually have you know a million dollars in cash in their pockets. So we, I would get free test drives, and you know when the TR7 came out, I remember going and and you know, I was in Connecticut visiting a friend, and I remember it had a it had a a really bad transmission even though it was brand new and i remember grinding gears and uh you know all synchro box and the guy complimenting me on my shifting technique um um, and uh but in any case uh so yeah so then uh so it was a natural that i'd end up writing about cars since i i like to ride and actually when i was in college in new york city i started writing a car column for a, a you know city school newspaper which was the one and only 
um, car column they ever had. Um, and I gave, um, I, I sent, <coughs> I, I graduated from college and I sent a bunch of stuff to car and driver and I got a nice letter back from them saying like, you know, you should come visit us. Um, and, um, I, I, I had bought, I'd sold my MGA, which I spent a bunch of time restoring after, um, um, I got out of college and didn't really know what to do and, and, uh, managed to coat my lungs in blue paint and I painted it and, uh, I sold it and I went to California with my then girlfriend and bought an M old MGB, which we drove cross country and we stopped in Ann Arbor and, um, the um i went for an interview with the then editor and he he basically said like well you know you write a lot of stuff that's very critical of the automobile industry and automobiles and air pollution and stuff like that and you know whenever you want to write something that's you know you can get a little bit over that uh and which was really just an invitation to pitch them for stories but my i was completely crushed and was like you know uh wow i failed it's not going to happen and um, it's funny because right around that time, I was, um, I spent weeks and weeks. I wrote a nine-page, you know, uh, yellow pad, legal pad letter to the editors of Car Magazine in England, which I'd also discovered, suggesting that they hire me. And I never sent it. I just chickened out. And so the moral of the story, um, kids, is that um, you know, don't give up because. Oh God, it would have been 12 years later. Um, I, uh, no, it wasn't even, it was like nine years later. I, uh, met the editor of car magazine and I had been, I had, I'd befriended a columnist for car whose name was Russell Bulgin by mail. Cause I had, I guess I had started to write, um, some features for automobile magazine and I was read car religiously and he was a young guy who was into music and cars and, I wrote him a letter and we be we became sort of pen pals. And then I visited with him in England. And he invited me to write when the Miata came out, they started a magazine called MX five. He did, which was a thing that, you know, English journalists who were woefully underpaid. Um, I mean, like really like, you know, 10 times less than American writers would get. Um, they uh, often did contract publications and things like that. So I, he offered me a column in it and I wrote, I think two, um, and then it folded, but the editor of Car liked what I had written and offered me a column, which was amazing. And Automobile Magazine, which had been founded very much as a, a with Car in its mind, it was the class English language car magazine of the world mm -hmm. at that point. Um, David E. Davis almost uh, bought the franchise instead of starting Automobile. He was going to start Car U.S. Um, but I think the name was unavailable and, you know, anyway, and he got Murdoch to fund automobile, um, offered me a column and the rest was history. So I ended up writing columns for my two, you know, essentially my two favorite car magazines because car driver of my youth was very much David E. Um, and, um, yeah, and, but I, I almost chickened out. So that's, that's the moral. You know, it's it's Don't funny you talk about all this. So I've, I don't think I've ever actually told you this, but I I read all your stuff growing up. So when I was in high school, I got really I was I'd always been in a car since I was about eight or ten years old, 
And when I got into high school, I was buying every American and every European car magazine I could find. So I, when I got out of high school, like senior year in high school and into college, I went to what, I mean, what felt like every couple of weeks I would go to Barnes and Noble and just, just pick up a stack of, yeah. you know, car yeah. magazines. You, you, you did the exact same thing. In there. Yeah. And, but I, I always fell in love with your columns because I felt that they were so, they were so wildly intelligent, more intelligent than I ever thought I could ever be as a, as a person. So I always was like, I was like, wow, damn, this guy is just like, you had this, um, this, I, I, I don't know what to call it because it's, it's, but it's this wild intelligence where it, it's not intimidating. It's almost inviting when you go, this person is so damn smart. I have to listen to everything they say or else I'll be stupid forever. And so that's what I felt like <laughs> reading your column. Well, so, that's good advice to everybody. Everybody listen to me. <laughs> otherwise, you'll be stupid forever. Uh, but, um, but yeah, uh, well, that's, yeah, well, that's, that's, uh, you, you know, the people that you read that, that, that turn your head are definitely, um, you know, they, they do that. And uh, I was, you know, I've been really lucky uh, that, uh, you know, there've been, you know, times where I got mad um, and didn't feel well treated or things like that. But um you know, I remember complaining to my dad. I had written a column for Automobile, and David, he censored it on the grounds that it was in, actually, it was in 1997, and GM had just recorded, it ties in with what we were talking about before, GM had just recorded its largest profit ever, and I, but it was also the first um, quarter that they had ever, or the first year that they had ever sold more trucks and cars. And I basically said, you know, the, the Cavalier is 15 years old. What do you fucking expect? And, um, <laughs> there, this will prove to be their downfall because what's going to happen is that they're either the price of gas will spike. Um, the, the, the fashion will change and people won't want to drive SUVs and, and, uh, trucks, uh, or cause they're, you know, they're not cool anymore or the Japanese will enter these markets and, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll whittle this down and you're going to be left because at that point, like there had been like, you know, seven Corollas in the period of one Cavalier right. and, uh, and you, you can't build a car anymore. And that's the, the plain fact is you don't even know how to build a good small car. So you, and you will one day rue this and you could go bankrupt. And, um, they were like, we're not, we're not running this column. And I was like, what, what, what do you mean? And, uh, so they, and, and to like, almost out of spite, they got PJ O'Rourke, who had by that point was already well established as a Republican party animal, mm -hmm. um, wrote a, some, you know, totally reactionary rant. I mean, I, I like PJ O'Rourke, but it was really stupid. And, um, um, and, um, I, I somehow got David on the phone and he was, he was a terrifying figure to me, even after I'd been at the magazine for, at that point, you know, they'd known of me for 12 years. Um, and he was like, you shouldn't have written this. I should have written it. And I was like, well, that's a pretty bad reason. <laughs> but, uh, um, but I was, you know, I mean, it made me feel a little better. And anyway, 
the Los Angeles Times uh, bought it. So I predicted GM's bankruptcy 10 years ahead of it happening or thereabouts. So Kind of ironic um, that David E. censored you when David E. kind of made a name for himself because he got censored back in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. Well, all those guys, I mean, they were all my heroes of the 70s were, uh, you know, they were hypocrites because they... They absolutely called out what was shitty about a 1972 Buick Electra. Right. Uh, but when you said the same thing about, you know, whatever the 6,000-pound SUV du jour was, they were suddenly um, very upset about it. And they became, you know, they I, ultimately, you know, David went in and out of advertising, working for GM's agency, and and they became very defensive about, you know, the, what they knew to be the underpinnings of the industry's profitability, which, you know, had to do with, you know, not just their friends, Mm -hmm. uh, which is always compromising, but their, their own, you know, profitability because, you know, they needed people to buy ads, but in David's credit or to, to his credit, um, he, um, I, in 1989, I think in the fall of 89, I went to drive, uh, the 1990 Pontiac line and the an engineer who was in a Grand Prix with me apologized and said, you know, this this car isn't the car we wanted to build. It's not as good as we wanted because you know Roger Smith siphoned off all the development money and we all we were told we could do is change the plastic body cladding and it's really not you know we're not really that proud of it off the record um, you know we're like don't don't say I told you and I. <coughs> Attribute, I, I, I quoted it in the story I wrote, and Automobile ran it, and I didn't name the guy's name or give an indication of who he was. And um, GM called David and said, you know, like, fire that guy. And uh, he's, he was like, fuck off. You know, I'm not doing that. You know, it's true. Um, so, you know, so he was really great. ExxonMobil once canceled a $350,000 campaign with Automobile based on something I wrote in, oh my the, in the middle nineties. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah. And my penalty was that I had to go, they were pitching VW's ad agency and I had a, who were thinking that it was time to be green. Maybe this was like 2000. Um, and, uh, so they brought me along to say <laughs> a bunch of green things to the Volkswagen ad agency. Uh, but, um, but yeah, uh, so yeah, so it was a complicated time, but all those guys change, and I see that happening to some of my some of the older cadre of of writers I know um, who you know have have you know they're they're you know there's there's a lot there's a lot of uh, willingness of journalists to accept the party line you know like you know things that bug me. Well, recently I got into a, a brouhaha with a friend of mine, but who's lately um, decided that it's okay that Trump repeals all the cafe regulations or, or you know, waters them way down, rolls them back. Um, and, you know, shocking because, you know, he's like <laughs> a guy's an anti-Trumpist and he's for all those things. But he was basically, he could have been Lynn Townsend, the chairman of Chrysler and 1973 saying that Chrysler will never build a small car, <laughs> uh, you know, during at the beginning of the energy crisis. And, uh, you know, he was shown the door shortly thereafter. But the, the other one that always bugs me are car makers who go, are rather journalists who 
uh, go, well, you know, uh, yeah, you know, it's a shame about the Cayenne and the Panamera weighing 6,000 pounds, but, you know, got to have those. If, otherwise, you'd be no 9-11, to which I say, you know, I think that's bullshit, you know. I mean, yeah. if Porsche had, you know, it would be a different company. I mean, what did they do with all the money they made? They tried to they try to buy Volkswagen and lost. Yeah, so that, 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 that wiped away a quarter of a billion Euro, uh, but you know, what if they'd taken all that money and instead made a 911 that looked like a 911, but was made out of space age materials and weighed 2,200 pounds and it had 250 horsepower and got 40 miles per gallon and you know, fucking haul ass. Um, you know, wouldn't that be a better company? I don't know. You know, would the world be a worse place? I don't think so. You know, I, I mean, I'm I'm with you in a sense that I, I well, I I hold like a fifty fifty issue in a sense that I I get that you know SUVs and trucks they sell to to for us to keep you know like I drive a GT three fifty so I have a 2017 GT three fifty as my personal car and look without the F one fifty they probably wouldn't make that car because it's just not a, it's not going to be enough of a money maker for them. But that's also there's also that amazing annoyance for me as somebody who reviews cars or knows people in the industry, and I sit there and I go, "Do you have a GT three fifty R? Did you say? Oh, not an R, just a regular. So just the all right, just the regular. That, that, know, just, that engine is sick. Oh, the engine it's it's amazing. I I always tell people I want to be more environmentally friendly, but it's hard when I have a GT three fifty. You know, it's like I just it's such a great car to drive. It's so much fun. I, I love my car every day I drive it. Yeah, you you probably get 20-something out of it. I'm currently averaging, um, about to hit 16,000 miles, I'm currently averaging 17.4 miles to the gallon overall. Ouch. Over those, over those, yeah. Now, that, granted, that is, that's only one, miles per, or one mile per gallon less than the 2015 Mustang GT performance pack that I replaced it with. So my E90 M3 out of 2009 M3 that... Uh, I think I got about 18, 19 miles to the gallon on it uh, for about the 33, 35,000 miles I owned it. I also had a uh, 2007 911 Carrera S. That I actually averaged, I think, 23 or 22 over the 30,000 miles I owned it. So, hmm. yeah. So, I, you know, some cars are better than others. I, you know, just kind of... Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with cars that get um, bad gas mileage. I have... Uh, or you know, you know, middling gas mileage. I just have a problem with saying that this is this is what we do is sell bad gas mileage cars. Right. We're but a volume maker, and and, okay. and yeah, yeah. People people really, you know, they may do. The, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that um, I, I researched this a lot in my research on the history of lead and gasoline. Lead gasoline was sold as a <clears throat> additive that would increase economy because the uh, effect of raising the octane of gasoline, which is what lead did, allowed them to compress it more and have higher compression ratios. So in the 1920s, compression ratios were you know, like 4.5 to 1 were standard because gasoline was so shitty then. Mm -hmm. um, there was, I mean, it had been, you know, uneven, but after World War One. There was an explosion in car sales, and there was such a demand for gasoline that they were like, oh, what the hell? And they just sold crappier and crappier gasoline, and it was even more uneven. So in any case, um, lead was a fix for crappy gasoline, but it also allowed them to uh, you know, increase compression ratios, which allowed them to make 
just uh, fantastical arguments about how much oil it was going to save. They only used it to make more horsepower. Cars got more and more and more powerful, and gas mileage did fell consistently for the next 60 years. Until, until CAFE was passed, um, there was no uh, uh, improvement in the American fleet's fuel economy. So, um, which to me suggested that CAFE was worthwhile and made this rollback uh, import, uh, you know, important bad news. Um, and um, so, you know, and it, it was just another proof of the lion lion that went around um, about gasoline, which is a whole other topic we can talk about another time. Well, what was, why were people so worried about ethanol? Like, why were people so thinking that, oh, this is going to be amazing? Because I remember when it all came about, I was like, you're going to get worse gas mileage, a little bit more horsepower. You're just going to be running to the gas station more. And we're just losing some corn. The, the, uh, you know, there are, there are, uh, infirmities, uh, that are, um, you know, ethanol might, might, that might fairly be attributed to ethanol, but it, overall, it's had a bad rap. And part of the reason, uh, which is legitimate, is that um, that the way ethanol production in the United States takes place is not the most efficient way, and it's involved. You know, it's there's a a certain you know boondoggle element of of having farmers grow corn to make ethanol. Right. Um, which distorts markets and things like that. And that, you know, that is uh, a wrap on the, you know, the way we do it, not on the stuff itself. There is no question that ethanol is b- burns more cleanly. And amusingly, um, w- its earliest champion as an automotive fuel, or at least it got an intention, was one Charles Kettering, uh, the head of the General Motors Research Lab, mm-hmm. who drove around the country in 1921 in a ethanol-powered Chevrolet uh, with his assistant, um, giving speeches before SAE chapter, saying ethanol was the fuel of the future. It left no deposits, unlike oil. It, it, engines lasted longer. Uh, it was renewable. Um, it harnessed the power of the sun. He sounded like, you know, like uh, you know, some kind of um, green person today, um, but it had a, 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 it, it, the the ethanol-powered Chevrolet was running 70% ethanol, 30% um, gasoline, um, and uh, it had um, you know, uh, as far as they were concerned, and uh, correspondence in their archives show this. Uh, they people would say, well, you know, wanted to destroy the you know rubber and carburetor parts and he, he wrote back saying no you know if you use cork for this and you use metal for that um uh, it works great and uh but it couldn't be patented um uh, lead could be it turned out and um they couldn't make a lot of money and there's a ton of correspondence where they're thinking about well if we were able to get 10 percent of the market uh, we could do this. Well, ultimately, they got like 95% of the market, and it made an absolute ton of money. And um, GM and its partners, DuPont, who were really owned GM, and Standard Oil of New Jersey, today's ExxonMobil, uh, divested of the company in 1962. So they made a shed load of money from 1923 to 1962. Uh, 
even though it was really dangerous and people said so at the time. But going back to ethanol, um, the uh, a lot, you know, you cannot escape the fact that um, the oil industry, which you may have heard is very powerful, um, is, um, you know, it's anathema to them because basically even at the 10% level that we have by government edict right. today, um, you know, that's 10, that's 10% of their entire business that they could be selling themselves. So, uh, the, the loss in economy is, is not that great that it isn't made up for by what could be, uh, cheaper, uh, production than they have cost, uh, than they have now. But, um, but by the fact that it's, it's, it, you know, while it's not, you know, uh, entirely benign, it's like wildly more benign than, um, than, um, burning gasoline is. Um, and, and, uh, you know, the CO2 emissions are lower, you know, dramatically in those cars, the flex fuel cars. And, um, the, um, uh, you know, the, the stuff itself is just, it's not the same kind of poison. So the, uh, and, and any of the, um, you know, uh, technological issues with it, it, uh, you know, damaging parts of cars, you know, that may be true for older cars, but modern cars, mostly not. And particularly not of the millions and millions of, uh, flex fuel vehicles that have been sold, which get, um, um, big, big tax credits, but which ultimately are rarely, if ever, filled with uh, E85 because there's, you know, a hundred stations in the whole country that right. sell it. Um, so, so, uh, but the, the, the actual science uh, is, is a lot of it is pretty sketchy because they, for instance, one of the big studies that was used when I was researching this, which was some time ago, but um, they, um, would do they would take an ear of corn in Iowa essentially and they wouldn't send the stock or anything else. They'd put it on a truck. They would truck it from Iowa down to a ethanol distillery in, in Baton Rouge and then they would truck it back to Iowa and they go, Well look at all the oil we used and you know, look at all the oil we used on the farm growing this. So, you know, that it was true to the extent that you have centralized production, which is something that ethanol actually lends itself very well to being decentralized. And also uh, you don't need to grow stuff on a petrochemical farm, a petrochemical intensive farm. And two, uh, you, um, uh, what was the thought that I was having? Um, oh, right. They, they don't, um, in those tests, they didn't use the full stalk of the corn and all the, cellulosic waste that all of which could be turned into ethanol. Finally, um, all of the stuff you use to make the ethanol, even in this corn process, um, was uh, lost none of its nutritional value and could be used as animal feed hmm. at the end. So they, they re it really got a bad rap, but um, you know, it does, there is this element where it's like, you know, are you for big oil or big agriculture? Well, mm, actually, right. ne neither. In this case, though, uh, big oil, you know, really put their thumb on the scales. And there were uh, there were lawsuits in the 80s 
you know, the, what killed one of the things that killed Carter was this. And the very first thing Reagan did when when he won in 1980, the very single first thing he did was was uh, lose the ethanol mandate um, that that Carter had established uh, then. And um, but one of the things that was going on around that time was that uh, like Shell. When you couldn't use your Shell credit card to buy gas that had ethanol in it. Huh. Like, you know, why would that be? That's you know, very, that's very. They would take ads that were false. Uh, they had laws passed in the in the twenties. Alcohol and fuels was common, and the thirties, and uh, they were brands that were sold in the United States, and they were uh, in Europe. There were brands that were like you know heavily ethanol, you know. Um, uh, weighted versus gasoline, you know, so like blends of, of ethanol. Ethanol is a great octane booster. So it, it serves a, a real purpose in getting you more economy too. Cause, uh, you know, pure ethanol is about a hundred octane. Right. Um, you know, a hundred real octane. Whereas, you know, gasolines of the 1920s were like 50. Um, they were like really, which is why you had those low compression ratios. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> um, if you need to answer so, anything, uh, go right ahead. I'm not. Yeah, no, that's okay. Uh, so, um, um, there, so yeah, so there, there's really a very long history that you could call the war against ethanol. And in fact, I don't know if it's online, but I wrote three columns in a row automobile called the war against ethanol parts one two and three about some of the stuff that happened around it and why you know it's it's a you know it's you know everything is gray you know if you, the more you know about anything the more gray it is but it, it was it, it got a bad rap it has a bad rap and uh you know i don't i don't think uh it's gonna become you know the fuel of the future probably uh but certainly, um, it was uh, a good one. What Kettering had in mind was that it was going to be a bridge fuel out of out of petroleum into um, solar power, which he, he he saw as the as the ultimate future that people would figure out a way to harness solar energy to power things, um, which is you know remarkably. Uh, far-sighted and environmentally sound for a guy who invented lead gasoline, Freon, and uh, <laughs> um, the his lab was also responsible for the discovery of chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, which are implicated in every you know plastic bottle and styrofoam pellet floating around the South Pacific. The power um, of profit. Yeah. Well, that's one of his. That was one of his uh, his other themes. He was like a cheerleader for capitalism and the market and uh, consumer spending and planned obsolescence and things like that. Uh, which is, of course, another aspect of lead gasoline is that it lead gasoline destroyed car engines and they knew it from the start. So. So kind of going back to uh, dealership stuff. So a friend of ours owns a a Chevy dealership um, and he and I had a a discussion a number of years ago. He was trashing Tesla. Um, You know, how dare they try and sell? You know, we have there's a reason we have these laws and rules to have dealer networks and things like that, blah, blah, blah. 
And I remember just saying, don't blame Tesla, blame General Motors. General Motors have purposely given you, you know, taken money that, you know, away from you being able to, uh, to discount cars or to be able to make, you know, more profit with certain things. But also, why are you attacking Tesla for building something that just because you can't, you know, sell anything against it? Why aren't you going back to General Motors and arguing with them about, hey, I need something to sell against this sooner rather than later? Now, we know that General Motors are making plenty of, you know, future product uh, that will go against Tesla. And I have no doubt that it'll be great because I actually... I really like the Volt, and I've never driven a Bolt, but I've heard from a lot of people that it's a fantastic car for what it is. Yeah. Um, and but what would you tell those dealers? What would you tell uh, you as a journalist and as a as an attorney? What would you say to them in that argument and in that fight of Tesla versus you know um, uh, the big three car dealers? You're asking me what I think. Um, well, I would say I agree with you that they shouldn't blame Tesla uh, for that. Um, you know, the irony is, is that mo- the dealership laws were passed in state legislatures to protect the dealers against the big three car makers, mm-hmm. essentially, uh, who were vin- mean and vindictive and, um, you know, played a lot of politics with dealerships and could if you were a dealer they could just fuck you up they could just go like yeah uh, you know what um we're putting this guy in down the street from you and his dealerships could be brand new because we're going to help him build it and it's going to be better than yours right you know uh so that's that's the genesis of all these rules so there is it's an irony in the car companies you know wrapping themselves in the state dealer laws but um I think, you know, um, that they, General Motors, you know, as, um, you know, you can't lead a water to, a horse to water and make them drink, but, um, you know, General Motors has led itself to water and refused to drink many times. Um, and it's, uh, it's amazing because I think they, they, you know, with the EV1 back in the 90s and with Bolt, you know, there was this window for them to, to own this stuff and they didn't. And it's a mistake and I think they'll rue it. Um, they, in general, none, you know, none of them, they don't advertise their electric cars. They don't market them. They don't have them in their press fleets, particularly. They don't want to, um, you know, they don't, they ultimately don't want to build them. And the more it became clear that whatever Obama was on about, and the society was on about in 2008 was history, you know, when Trump got elected, you know, it was like they hit the brakes on everything. And like, why right. even bother? Why would they stop making the vault? I mean, hybrid technology, in my view, is, you know, it's, it's, it's a way station, but it's, you know, it's those cars work. They had loyal fan bases. They were perfectly good. And, um, and there were people I knew who had them and, you know, didn't buy gas for a year. Uh, and, uh, and, and yet did everything they had to do. Um, I don't, you know, I mean, that, those are lost opportunities to me. And it reminds me of Bob Lutz was talking about the Prius and he was always making fun of Toyota for building the Prius and, you know, and insisting that they, you know, they were saying otherwise after a while that they had turned the corner and were making money that they couldn't possibly be. And then of course, GM went bankrupt. <laughs> and Lutz was discussing it one day and he said, you know, you know, I was probably wrong if I had looked at that just as a marketing spend rather than as a, you know, on straight, like 
profit per unit thing, uh, it was worth it. Because then, you know, of the hybrids, you know, Toyota sells, you know, what, at one point they were selling 95% of them. So, you know, they own that. And it could have been that way for the Volt because it was cheaper than a Tesla. And you had like a two years before the Model 3 came out. And, you know, you could get it for less money. And it was a good car and it was well-engineered and cheerful. And it, it was the right message. And, you know, they were just like, you know, couldn't be done soon enough uh, with, with, with it. So I, I think those are, you know, that's the short-term thinking, you know, a, a great modern example of it, of what it, what it does company. Overall, I think that uh, companies have done appalling, and I, I don't think acting an job of selling the pluses of electric cars. I was pretty dubious. I mean, once upon a time I was, I thought, well, you know, if you're getting the electricity from the dirty coal plant, you know, it's, it's probably the worst, uh, which isn't true, but, um, but I thought it, and I thought, like, you know, I love the sound of an engine, I love everything about internal combustion engines, and how how could it be fun to drive an electric car? But then I had electric cars for extended periods of time, including this e-golf for a year, and I was completely sold. It's 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 actually luxurious to not mm-hmm. hear a car engine. If you're going somewhere, you arrive refreshed instead of like you know kind of drowned out. If you're sitting in traffic, you're not using electricity, you know, uh, hardly at all. And um, <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it's it's great. You know, it's like what's what's a, you know. In a year, I had an eagle for fifteen thousand miles. I calculated that they, I avoided fifty four trips to the gas station. Wow. I mean, what and and what's the bad part about that? I didn't have to breathe gas. I didn't have to get my hands dirty. Didn't have to get out of the car and plug it versus plugging in a plug and watching it charge at high speed. So you know, I could do everything I needed to do around the New York area. I could go from my house up the river into into the Brooklyn, go to Manhattan, go to Queens, uh, and come back. And in the, in the morning, I'd plug it in and um, charge it on a high-speed charger, and I was ready to go to lunch in the city a couple hours later. You know, it had a range. Of, I could get about 120 miles out of it. Then it allowed me to do everything I had to do so that I was able in a year to put 15,000 miles on it, which was, you know, was, was pretty good, I thought. Um uh, for an electric car. So anyway, um, I think what they need to do is is they need to obviously they have to offer the products. They have to get behind them and sell them like you need them. They have to kick their dealers' ass, and most of all, they have to market them. You know, I mean, they they General Motors became the great company that it was. It overtook Ford basically by marketing. You know, mm-hmm. doing things that mm-hmm. made people want to buy their cars instead of Model Ts. And they should be doing that for electric cars, and they should own it. They should, you know, talk about why it's fun. They should make people think, this is exciting, this is great, it's the future, which they used to also be very good at, instead of just, you know, going like, oh, we have to do this, and, you know, do you really want to buy that? Uh, You know, so, anyway. So for my, my final questions to you, because now we've brought it back to modern cars and, and the future of cars. And again, you as somebody who gets behind the wheel of a lot of fantastic cars, both pricey and not so pricey, mm-hmm. what are some of the modern car features that you hate that you love and some that you love to hate? Mm. Well, I mean, all the connected stuff, I mean, I, I love to hate and I, I hate that I love it. <laughs> um, I, you know, I mean, you know, that stuff is, is all 
good, you know, Bluetooth and, you know, um, uh, Car Connect and, uh, you know, all that, Apple Connect and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, the um, <clears throat> things that bug me, that, that really bug me are the things that interfere with your steering. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you can usually shut them off, so that's good. But uh, and I, I'd be a lie if I didn't say they probably saved me a couple of of pretty scary moments. Uh, you know, like drifting out of my lane, or um, you know, um, trying to change lanes without getting a good view of what's in the rear view mirror. Um, so uh, those, those types of things I can find very annoying. Things that tell me that you know it's time for me to have some coffee because you know I, <laughs> right. I deliberately like drove around somebody who was drifting out of their lane. But you know, but uh, that stuff uh, I'm all for it. Uh, airbags I think are a good thing. Um, you know, um, and uh, ABS I'm for and uh, <laughs> right. you know, uh, uh, b- b- bright lights that turn themselves off and on. Uh, automatically are great. Uh, uh, I'm not, um, you know, I, I, things like traction control and all that kind of stuff, you know, I, I'm not against them. Um, I think that they're essential with some of the cars, but I think they underscore the kind of the silly nature of the horsepower arms race. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. do not get me wrong. I like fast cars. I like accelerating. I like top speeds. I like the idea of going faster than 65 miles an hour. But, um, you know, I think the average person doesn't need, um, you know, 600 horsepower. And when you're putting in, you're having to put in multiple devices to prevent them from killing themselves or their car, you know, maybe another way at it would have just to been made the car lighter and, and slower to start with. Well, you know? and that's, that's something that always gets on my nerves because being you know having a gt350 and being in the you know talking with people that have them and as soon as some of these people get them they supercharge them and they've got you know 700 horsepower 800 horsepower and i'm going why why what what was so bad about the regular car that you had to yeah. have you know 35 percent more horsepower 50 percent more horsepower to it that's ridiculous what it was wrong but at the same time i would not want the government to regulate it so it's like, yeah, it's... well, I, you know, a- aftermarket stuff or even getting your hands dirty, I, I, it doesn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't stop people from selling stuff like that. I right. just think it's stupid, you know? Um, and, um, you know, I'm not, uh, uh you know, I, I've been accused of, you know, wanting to stop people from buying SUVs and things like that, that they don't need. And, uh, you know, there are ones that just, you know, I mean, you know, basically, uh, supercharged, you know, Galadavagans and things like that. It just seems like, what? Why would you want that thing? You know, it handles yeah. poorly. It's it's it, it's top heavy. You know, why why do you want to make that even faster and ride even shittier than it does <laughs> right. by putting on you know twenty three inch you know super low profile tires? Uh, that that's a uh, a technology. I mean, I, I see what why people like the way they look, but I, I hate big wheels and tires. If there's ever a choice, I always get the smaller um, tire um, and wheel. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I can't even remember what I was saying. But yeah, I don't. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to outlaw it. But at the same time, I think that the car makers, you know, they they could responsibly, you know, 
not do some of that stuff or they could sell it out of the back of the dealership rather than, you know, making their whole model year built around their thousand power horsepower car. Right. And and by the same token, even like the two thousand horsepower electric cars seem kind of stupid to me. I don't really uh, yeah. Get what the 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 uh, Avaya or whatever that Lotus is like. What you know? What the real point of that is, and what that has to really do with what the car that they should build is. I understand that there's maybe some business case and some PR case to be made for it, but it just doesn't it doesn't interest me that much. You know, Bugattis do not interest me that much. Yeah, um, they don't interest me either. Know. Yeah, you know, because there's nowhere to you know there's nowhere to drive like that. And frankly, you know, even you know, modern M5s and M3s, you know, it's like, I don't want a car that I either has to drive like a total asshole <laughs> or be in like, you know, in, in, in real jeopardy of going to jail right. or killing someone to have fun. And, you know, my idea of a fun car is a fun car that's fun, you know, up to and over the speed limit or even just up to is fine, you know? So I have an old MG midget, which, you know, I can drive at nine tenths and, you know, not even, be you know breaking the passing through a school zone law you know um um that's that that to me is more fun i have a, a one city car commuter which is a 94 fiat chancacento which is got snuck into the country but it's legal now it's um but it's 900 cc's it gets 52 miles per gallon it i you, i can park it you know, like in in between two motorcycles and <laughs> right, crack, yeah. uh, and uh, it's um, you know it'll go eighty. You know um, what? You know, it's, it's steering's nice. It's comfortable. What's not to like? You know. Yeah. Um, so that those things impress me more. I'm a big Lancia fan, and you know, um, I have a Fulvia Berlina now, but it's you know it's like one point two liters, um, and it's great. You know, it's, it's like a luxury car with a tiny engine that revs and it's really fun and it sounds great. And it's, everything's like a sewing machine. Um, that, that to me is a, is a much, uh, better ideal than, you know, an overpowered thing that's built crappy and handles crappy. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. I, as much as I love my GT three fifty, there are some days where I'm like, I just don't need this. I need to sell this. I need to get, a GTI or something, you know, something that's just simple that I don't, you know, that just doesn't. Or have them both. See, that's the other problem. Uh, I've said that to my wife, but then she, you know, she punches me. So, you know, my wife beats me. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think, uh, yeah, I think she needs an attitude readjustment. uh, (laughs) Maybe you need to go into counseling, um, but, you know. My, you know, uh, you want to have a do. Di- you want to have a diversified portfolio? You know, that's what I keep telling her. I'm like, honey, come on, we can invest in all these great little old classic cars that are just simple runabout cars. And she's like, no, no, no. You because the problem is, anytime I have an extra dollar, I immediately jump and go buy camera gear and camera equipment or something techy. And so she's mm-hmm. like, how about you? How about you sell most of the stuff you have that you don't use? And you can go get whatever car you want. I'm like, oh man, but that's boring. I, <laughs> why do I have to sell things I don't? I, I already have. Uh, well, you know, my heart bleeds for you. <laughs> right. <It's... laughs> I know it's such a terrible, terrible situation to be in. But Jamie, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you. Uh, yeah, Josh. 
Uh, yeah, well, I look forward to meeting you in person sometime. If I haven't already, possible we met at an auto show or something and said hello. But uh, but yeah, we could uh, we could do a power hang sometime. Yeah, I would love to, man. I really would. Okay, right. it has been Take an absolute care. pleasure. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye. Well, what'd you think? Good conversation, right? Yeah, I was. I, I was. It, it's not rare. For me to have great conversations with people. I have conversations with people all the time. And I enjoy all of them. I do. Well, not all of them. Some I really don't enjoy. But really for the most part. I enjoy talking to people. Listening to people. Asking questions. And hearing their responses. It's also the inflection in their voices. It is the attitude they carry while answering. But one of the things that I love about, about Jamie is that. You, you know. You just know he knows what he's talking about. Obviously, if you read his his articles, his points of view, his opinions, his advice, you could tell that this is this is a pretty well learned guy. He ain't no dummy, unlike me who just used "ain't no dummy." So again, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I, I hope you're staying safe and sane. Again, send this podcast to people if you love them. Send it to them if you don't like them. If you want to torture them for two hours, there you go. They don't like cars. Send this to them. If they do like cars and they do like listening to people uh, that know about cars and have funny opinions or entertaining opinions, there you go. Ship this off to them. Don't forget, we're on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on there. Subscribe to us on Podbean. Uh, go to rawdos.com. Uh, find us on Stitcher and find us on Spotify as well. And... Uh, Yeah, until Monday, the 13th, the day after Easter, I hope you have a fantastic weekend. And if you celebrate Easter, have a great Easter. Stay home. Be safe. Don't go to church, even if you want to. Even if your preacher's like, hey, come on in. Ah, God's going to help you. Stop. If you believe in God, you believe that God has given you enough signs to stay your ass home. Really. Just stay home. And always remember, happy motoring.